Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode three. This is Brian. Uh, I'm Edmund. I'm Gary. Today we are looking at Goldfinger from 1964, starring Sean Connery as Bond. So I will go ahead with uh, a quick summary about this one. Um, we have at the beginning M giving Bond the assignment that he is going to be following and investigating Oric Goldfinger. And uh, Goldfinger is not known to be a criminal at this point, but suspect, but he is uh, suspected of a number of things. So Bond is set to, uh, to take a look at him, and Bond gets rather more involved than was intended uh, rather quickly. And we get the, uh, the famous moments of uh, Bond essentially taking his girlfriend and uh, the girlfriend's subsequent death. And we move into this um, uh, long-involved situation of Oric Goldfinger planning his master criminal activity of breaking into Fort Knox and a um, series of things where Bond is held prisoner by him and Bond has to discover what's happening with this. Yeah, so uh, this is certainly always considered, if you look at lists of people and they're talking about their favorite Bonds, somehow this one always seems to end up on top. And I think that it's probably because it has so many iconic elements to it. Um, personally, I, I this is nowhere near the my favorite James Bond movie because I find that it has a lot of very slow and, and somewhat boring bits. So I don't really rewatch it that often. But certainly the scenes that it does have that work really well are are some of the best and they are really the best representation of bond if you if you were going to tell someone to watch a single bond movie and they'd never seen one before this is a really good place to start yes absolutely it's definitely iconic and it sort of moves the franchise from uh, a couple of very good movies at the beginning that were uh in a way, finding their way, moving to something that is very much an established and sort of well-defined uh, format that is sort of really going for it, which is something that is is quite enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I uh, this is one that I actually came to a little bit a little bit later in my view of Bond. Um, as I was as I was growing up, and as I mentioned in earlier podcasts, I start actually sort of started watching them with the Roger Moore, and then worked my way back. And uh, but uh, as I was getting into film history, I'd I'd, I'd set a rule for myself. There were certain films that I, I wanted to see in the theater for the first time, especially since this was back when TV meant uh, lots of cuts and commercials, long, long before cable. Um, right. And, uh, you know, someone will... You know, and then we're talking about films like Psycho and uh, the original Godfather, and the other one was, you know, no, I have to see Goldfinger in the theater. So, and uh, certainly when I when I saw it, it was, uh, you know, especially having seen some of the what, what was going on with some of the later, you know, Roger Moore films, it was sort of feeling like, you know, yeah, I was seeing where a lot of these, you know, cl classic elements were really being established and put in place. Um, you know, where uh, you know as much much as I, you know, like like the first two, you know, this was where sort of you know some of the big sweep and the gadgets 
suits and uh, you know the sort of you know I, I, icon, iconic villains with their uh, you know strange almost superhuman henchmen was uh, was was all starting. Yes, absolutely. We had some of the same cast of um, allies for Bond in terms of having M and Q and Moneypenny, but those relationships and roles are all becoming better defined. I think this is the, the first time that Q really comes into his own. We see a classic Q scene, we see Q's workshop for the first time uh, with all sorts of uh, things going on in the background and what have you, and we see uh, and we see Q being um, uh, you know not quite so friendly and a little bit uh, resentful of Bond and sort of developing that wonderful relationship that we see so many times over the years. Oh no, but no, I was just uh, going to say you know you definitely get the impression that you know no he's had a little bit more experience with Bond and he's he's definitely getting annoyed now at <laughs> the abuse of his equipment. Yeah, I've pretty much set the template for everything to follow uh, as far as Q goes. Um, also, other things like the Money Penny has sort of now fallen into the more of the spinster role, I think. There's sort of more of a sense of uh, she's just always pining for Bond and never going to get him or anything like that. Whereas the first two movies, like I said, there was a bit more playfulness, I think. Um, but this time, she's just sort of like always, always the bridesmaid, never a bride kind of thing. Yes. And again, that was establishing that. The relationship with M as well is a little more casual. I mean, they go, there's a lot more banter between them. And M is far more sort of humorously critical of Bond. Yes. And I, re I really like the idea that we have Bond at the beginning being asked to do something relatively simple. And he screws it up royally. Yep, and gets called on the carpet for it. Yes, and that was that was a great moment where M basically says to him, "Look, this is what we what we asked you to do, and this is what you did. What's going on?" Yeah, yeah, and and we barely got you out of there, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it may be the first time that they offered to replace him with 008, which is another line that gets used a lot over the course of the films. Yes, that's right. <laughs> As a threat. We have other agents. We can replace you. No, they can't. <laughs> and you start getting the sense that through this, um, M is starting to get the idea of what Bond is good at, and Bond is the agent you send in to shake things up. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So there was that sort of thing coming in, and that was nice. We, uh, we did have Felix Leiter in this, but yet a different actor playing Felix Leiter. Yeah, the first of the many bland, bland Felix Leiters that would, yes. would show up. And pretty much they're almost all bland from this point on. Yes, this was Cease Linder as uh, Felix Leiter. And yeah, um, I miss Jack Lord from Dr. No. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you, you just miss the personality. I mean, the 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 slider is is fairly dull. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one thing that it's uh, amused me seeing them all in quick succession like this. Is you know all all the talk that people have of you know with all the the change in actors in Bond of you know whether Bond is just a code name, etc. And it's like you know you're definitely getting the impression that Felix Leiter is just a code name. <laughs> you know, for you know whichever poor CIA agent is the one who's being assigned to the double O agents. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, we have in the villains, uh, I think we have some fun stuff. We have not not the first uh, Bond henchman villain, but the first sort of uh, absurd henchman with bizarre ways of killing of killing people, which uh, I still find tremendously entertaining. Oh yeah, there's no question. I mean, this movie has probably the best henchman and very probably the best villain. So as far as villains go, this movie can't be beaten, I think. Yeah, Odd, odd Job with the... I don't know who came up with the concept of Odd Job throwing his hat and having a blade on the rim, rim of his hat and beheading people with that. But uh, it certainly works brilliantly. Yeah, no, it was very, very, just it was great film work and was really well done. It's created so many other characters like that in, in other films. Yes, absolutely. And uh, they, um, uh, as they had with some of the uh, Bond girls in the, uh, the first couple of films with the Bond girls, they were uh, hiring people who were not really actors. Uh, you know, they would hire... Uh, um, beauty pageant winners. Yeah, beauty pageant winners or uh, photographers, models, and so on. Well, for Odd Job, they hired a they hired a competitive wrestler. <laughs> yeah, no, they were definitely casting this time more for like acting capability or at least believability in the role. Yeah, uh, in the in case of Odd Job, obviously the acting wasn't really all that necessary, but uh, certainly having the believable physical strength was was good. Yes, Harold Takata was in his first role, his first film role, uh, but he was uh, a, a Hawaiian wrestler who was at the Olympic level, actually. Hmm. So, yeah, he was believable as someone who uh, who was strong and someone who could brawl and so on. Right. Yeah. And, and crush golf balls at appropriate time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, again, it fit, it fits into the ongoing thing with the with the Bond films, where they would often hire people um, for uh, you know for uh, an unusual appearance or for something that was different, rather than going for the you know the typical pool of actors. And that was done sort of with an interesting swing on it in that case. Yeah, and, and I read that that Gert Frobe, who played Goldfinger. Was cast, uh, was cast. I mean, he was chosen. Uh, one of the producers saw him in something else, and they thought he'd certainly fit the bill of what Goldfinger should look like. And so they invited him to do the movie, and his agent promised them that he could speak English. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, when he showed up, he couldn't speak a word of English. Yes. But they, uh, I, I think he said, hello, it's nice to meet you, and that was about all he could say. Yeah, and the other, another actor they had possibly, they were possibly going to cast Theodore Bikel, a well-known stage actor. Um, yeah. And you just wonder, that would not have gone as well. I mean, he might have been a good villain, but there's no way he would have captured the... There is, there is footage of his screen test. Yeah. And it's... It's okay, but it's, oh, it's sure, not yeah. the same. But it just wouldn't um, have been good enough. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. he is a, a a fine, fine actor, but just does, doesn't have the presence that Gert Frobe does. Yeah, Gert Frobe, they had, uh, one of the producers had seen him, and I believe it was a German film where he played a child molester. So, you know, they were, you know, seeing this person who could really pull off the sort of, um, uh, you know, Very disturbing uh, aspect, and uh, yeah, re you really seem evil. And um, 
Yeah, they they did in the uh, what's developing as uh, a pattern. They uh, they had someone do a voiceover. Um, so uh, the voice of um, of Goldfinger was. Um, Michael Collins, I think. Michael Collins, I, yes, Michael Collins did the voice, and he actually matched it to Gert Froba's acting pretty well. Oh yeah, I think it's it's terrific. I I I would bet the majority of the people that watch the movie have no idea it's been dubbed. Oh yeah, it's yeah. it's completely believable. It, it it is very believable. It was well done. Um, it's how you'd want it's how you'd want him to sound. Yes, it is. <laughs> you wouldn't want like most dubbings. I mean, it, it sounds nothing like the character, and it, it's frustrating to watch. But this one, it's perfect. Yes, absolutely. And uh, part of what they did to help with this, because they knew they were going to have him dubbed, so they deliberately got him to speak quickly. I see. Uh, he he was. Um, uh, you know, mem- uh, memorizing lines phonetically, and apparently they they came out, you know, being pretty garbled. I I don't I don't think any audio of that exists, but they apparently came out pretty garbled, and um, the the pace of them that they were quite quick meant that you could do the dubbing and make it work. Mm. I don't think there was any dubbing necessary for Odd Job. No, because no, there was no dialogue, and no, for once they got an actress who could actually speak English. Yes, that uh, they um, they did something interesting for the uh, the female lead, the character of Pussy Galore. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess also starting our tradition of uh, um, bizarre names for Bond girls. Uh, they got Honor Blackman for this who may, uh, possibly was the, the first time that they had uh, an actor coming in who was all, already well-known to the, the movie-going public, at least in the UK. Oh, yeah. Uh, because Honor Blackman was just coming off of her two-year or almost two-year stint on The Avengers. Um, that was uh, The Avengers, of course, the, uh, the British spy TV series with Patrick McNee uh, went through a number of co-stars. And for, seri- for most of Series 2 and all of Series 3, it was Honor Blackman playing Kathy Gale. So she was coming almost straight off of that into doing this Bond film. So at that point, she was uh, really very well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the, by the time it was in theaters, uh, Diana Rigg probably would have been uh, broadcast on the Avengers already. But certainly as the lead up to this was happening, uh, it would have been before the time when she was on there. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I actually read that, they, you know, there, there were you know, rumors about her, be, you know, being the next Bond girl. But it was like, oh, no, no, no but, you know, but she's on the Avengers. And uh, when they sort of po- po- pulled the switch, they were, you know, they're actually keeping it under wraps. So that uh, you know, no, when uh, when her her sign off, you know, her final episode came, you know, it was actually, you know, it was definitely intended, intended, and worked as a surprise. And uh, you know, they actually had her final episode, you know, end on a note where it uh, did sort of, you know, subtly signal that uh, what she was going off to do. So, <laughs> to, you know, it uh, it all, all all worked out in the end. But uh, you know, yeah, it was uh, you know something that people just you know thought should happen. 
Yeah, almost as and, and almost as iconic as Pussy Galore is uh, Shirley Eaton as Jill Masterson. And although Jill Masterson's name isn't well known to anybody, uh, the way she died is pretty uh, is probably the most iconic thing in the entire movie. Yes. yes, and she only as an actress only has what about five minutes of screen time or something? It's, barely even it's, that. Yeah, yeah, barely even yeah. that. And of course, there's the the famous moment where she is seen uh, painted in gold and uh, you know dies of skin suffocation from uh, from being painted in gold. And you see the the dead golden woman lying on the bed there, and it's become this classic image of. Goldfinger, and you could argue it's one of the one of the classic images of the Bond films altogether. Definitely, I mean, it was so it's so iconic. They uh, even like copied it in a recent movie just to let people sort of remind them of Goldfinger. I think more than anything else. Yes, I'm thinking, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, right. To a lesser extent, there are a couple, there are a couple other women in this movie. I think there's uh, Tanya Mallet as um, as Tilly Masterson, who is sister, Jill's sister, yes. who appears in the middle of the movie and contributes really very little to the film. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, that's sort of the point I find where the film does tend to lag at times. But I, I also want to want to remind everyone of uh, the presence of Dink, the uh, the girl Bond is with uh, poolside at the very beginning of the movie. It's a particularly classic scene. If you guys remember it well, it's uh, the one where basically Bond meets Lighter and shoes Dink away. Yeah. Talk uh, man talk, oh, and he yeah. gives her a playful slap as well while doing it. Yes. It's kind of an iconic moment again in the movie. It's just Connery being Connery. No, no other Bond would do that. I think <laughs> that's probably true. It's hard to imagine any of the other ones doing it. But it's always a funny scene. Uh, the movie also, uh, oh, that opening scene also sets up another uh, popular Bond trope, which is the, the villain likes to cheat at, uh, at games of any kind, pretty much. And that's, that's certainly a Fleming carryover, right. where his villains were always cheating, and, in the, and he viewed that as a clear sign of their pathology. I mean, right. basically, anyone who was a cheater at a gentleman's game was probably a villain and a murderer or, or worse. Yes. <laughs> and so the, movie, the movie's carried on in this way, and, and in many, many subsequent movies we find the villain cheating in order to win yes this was a memorable way it was done with uh, you know someone looking at the other players cards with binoculars very lo-fi yes <laughs> yeah yes and the yeah, and the, the 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 rigged up hearing aid <laughs> <laughs> it's all the funnier when you watch it now but it, it's it is a good bit yeah yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's one of those one of those cases where you know you have to remember it is '64, and you know, and yes, at the time that would be considered high tech. <laughs> yep. Yes, absolutely, yep. and it. Um, I liked how they connected in that idea of the the card game and the cheating, and Bond has to come in and mess with that and screw it up, even though he was just there for surveillance. He has to, you know, come in and rattle the cages. Yep. And and that was um, perhaps a bit of a defining moment for uh, for Bond, or at least uh, something that we we start to see him in that way more uh, with that scene and some of the other scenes you're thinking of his attitude towards women. You know these um, characteristics of Bond and some of the other characters start coming together in this film? Yeah, definitely with respect to Connery, Connery had this down pat, but the whole threatening or toying with the villains for a while is, is something 
think he did a lot of. Yes. Sometimes better than others. Uh, but th- in this movie, it's particularly good. He does toy with Goldfinger for quite some time. It's Goldfinger's pleasure at when he captures Bond later, all the more uh, amusing or to watch. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. This uh, this film ups the ante for the gadgetry. Uh, you know, in the previous film from Russia with Love, the set piece gadget was a briefcase that had a variety of odd things loaded into it and hidden in it. And in Goldfinger, we're introduced to the famous Aston Martin DB5 car, replacing replacing the Bentley. Uh, Bond even mentions the the Bentley, which I had forgotten about. Yeah, we talked about that not long ago, that he had a Bentley, and they were confirmed at first there. That's right, yeah. Uh, but it brings in the the whole idea of uh, you know the cars and the really complex gadgetry and um, the whole um, uh, you know the dynamic of Q presenting the stuff to Bond. Mm-hmm. So that was something that uh, you know they really pushed in this film, and I think it worked really well. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was really also, fun, and this introduced the 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 passenger ejector seat, which uh, is sort of the um, you know one of the classic Bond things, and also the uh, idea that there has to be something where Q says, "Okay, never use this right. or never do this," and of course you're going to see that. Yeah, but, yeah it, it will come up, but uh, but also I mean I like I like the way they you know they you know you you get it all presented. And then it's just sort of the, the slow build of you know no I mean you know he uses the tire shredder you know with uh, with Tilly and uh, you know and then you know of course you know the the iconic you know ch- chase through the plant where he gets to you know re- really pull out all the stops and uh, you know sort of slowly go through the checklist of <laughs> the rotating license plates yeah. and everything yeah it's all it's all very good yeah. But, the smoke screen, oil slick, etc. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and and then of course that perfect opportunity to uh, press that red button. <laughs> You know, and you know, but because uh, I, I remember, I mean, that, that first time seeing it, I mean, you know, that was the sequence where I was really just sort of going, you know, you know what. Wow, this really is sort of you know bond at full throttle, not to pun too heavily, but uh, um, and uh, you know and you know but 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 then I mean to go through that whole sequence, but then and then have him actually captured at the end, um, you know you just assume it's like you know no he's, he's you know he's 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 got to get out of it, and then you know no winds up you know strapped to the table with the 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 iconic laser beam scene, and uh, you know let you know let's let's face it, I mean in terms of iconic stuff in this film. You you know the, the the best villain comeback in, in the entire series. I think you'd have to say. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the uh, I believe the first use of a laser in a movie as a as a major plot point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was figuring you know, that would be something new for the very uh, the people watching yes, as well. Was, the laser had to. It was. Yes, it was something very new, and you're also getting the things about the the villains that have these uh, bizarre ways of killing people, and the villains that have the uh, uh, very complex and involved um, lair where they uh, where they are, and we have the the wonderful scene where Goldfinger is outlining 
uh, his uh, his plan to uh, to rob Fort Knox to this group of criminals flown in from all over the country, and of course he has the um, the the room with like you know nineteen moving parts where everything moves around and turns into this uh, big projection system where they can. Uh, show all of the details of this yep no it's a great scene um of course it's crazy but uh, it's another brilliant ken adams set who really pulled out all the stops on this one um just the i don't know how many sets he was involved in but certainly the the, the key ones are the laser beam scene uh and the goldfinger like plan scene and of course uh the well, scene at the end in fort knox the brilliant yep. the brilliant yeah. set of fort knox which it's still uh, an amazing sequence to watch. Oh, absolutely! Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. The the fight, the uh, the big fight between Oddjob and Bond was done so well. And you know, we mentioned that Harold Sakata was really not an actor coming into this, but. I quite enjoyed his performance in the fight scene. He's having fun. He's having fun yeah, with yeah. it. Yeah, it's just that, that, yeah, that, that sort of just supreme confidence of, you know, yes, throw, throw everything you have at me. I, I know I can beat you. <laughs> yes, that smile of, you know, oh, 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 you just hit me in the chest with a brick of gold. Ha ha. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah, that tickled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there was some lovely stuff there and how they uh, they put together and choreographed um, uh, some of these fight sequences and the like. And certainly the big set pieces were uh, were also um, really fun and very impressive with uh, Goldfinger's place and also with Fort Knox, of course. Yep. Um, the theme song for Goldfinger, again, I think is uh, an iconic and very memorable one. Um, the uh, first time of, uh, of several that Shirley Bassey would sing the Bond song. Absolutely. And um, it uh, sort of set the, the tone for the, the genre of Bond songs that were used quite a bit, I think. Yeah, they got uh, Anthony Newley and Leslie Bercuse did the uh, words, I think, the lyrics. And they basically, I think, had, as you said, set the tone for a sort of a corny, cheeky dialogue, or not the dialogue, but the lyrics are always kind of silly. But that's what yes. part of what makes the Bond song great. And, of course, the, the lyrics here are great, are, are really, really funny. Yeah. And, and it's always, uh, I, you know, a stand and deliver virtuosic, uh, you know, no holds barred performance. Yeah, well, if you have one of the, I have one of those Bond CD compilations and uh, Anthony Newley's version of Goldfinger is on there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think there were clips of that in the um, the DVD extras I was just looking at as well. Yeah, so it's a much lower key version of it. I'm sure. Yes, but we also have, we also have the really good uh, opening title sequence, uh, the pre-title sequence, um, which is uh, just a minor side mission that Bond happens to deal with uh, somewhere in Central America, possibly in Mexico. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's punctuated. The mission itself is pretty irrelevant for the most part, but it's punctuated with a really good scene at, at the at the bar in the room with the girl and the guy trying to kill Bond. Uh, a really good fight scene, and of course, a really good one-liner from from Bond. Uh, yep. Shocking, shocking. Yeah, uh, absolutely sure. After, after the guy's electrocuted. After the guy's been electrocuted. And that is probably the beginning of a series of very bad puns from Bond. <laughs> that oh, would, would pretty much like sink him in later films. But this was probably the first real example of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that scene also has that um, uh, really neat but slightly freaky moment where Bond sees <laughs> the thug as a reflection in the girl's eye. Yeah, yes. James Bond, when he looks into your eyes, he really looks into your <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Still a great film trick, a really good, yes. good idea, oh, yeah. and, and it was so well conveyed to the audience. Yeah. yeah, it's a good moment, yeah. for sure. Even if you don't believe it's possible, it, it looked impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, if anything, I mean, I, I, I keep, like, I keep seeing it, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful trick shot, you know, and if anything, it's like, you know, more, you know, at the very least, her, you know, her attention is distracted, so you can see where he's getting the, uh, the little tip off, you know, even if you can't really see somebody in their eyes. <laughs> but also, I mean, I kind of like the fact that the, you know, the whole ending of that fight is, you know, kind of for- foreshadowing the uh, end of the film as well. Yep. Uh, you know, because the, the other thing about that fight is that, you know, yeah, I mean, a physically odd job is, you know, you know, completely has, you know, has him on the ropes. And, uh, you know, it's also the start of, you know, Bond having to come up with some innovative way of uh, taking these guys down. But, uh, yes, that's right. While and the clock have... ticks towards doom. Yes. Right. <laughs> the beginning of another Bond trope. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think this was the first time where we had that sort of pre-title sequence that was, uh, you know, the little capsule, here's Bond doing something else, and, you know, some... Uh, you know, uh, exciting action sequence that is not really related to the rest of the film, but it sort of um, sets the tone, I guess. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sort of um, done uh, done nicely as well. The, the title sequence um, with that wonderful uh, Goldfinger theme was pretty good. Uh, I... They do sort of change a little bit from this point, but um, uh, I think it worked uh, pretty well and sort of resembled the one that was used in From Russia With Love. Yep, as being by the same guy, Robert Brown John. Right. Makes sense. Uh, I think. I think for some, in some ways, certainly his design work is far better than the ones that would follow. Uh, but I think the Goldfinger title credits are actually quite beautiful, and I think they make they make for better posters and they make for better artwork. Yes, they do make for very good posters and artwork, and yeah, they it uh, it works very well. Yeah, because because certainly with the, with this one, I mean, it's you know compared to what we're what, what's what's to come. I mean, you know, the, this was you know even though it's using you know the the iconic gold girl, but you know, but the fact that it's reflecting you know actual scenes and shots from the movie. It's uh, you know no, I mean it does it sort of you know we're still somewhat based in the in the plot and the film to come rather than just going into these you know surreal sort of you know gr- graphic creations flashing across the screen. That's right. Yeah. I think a lot in this film, and you probably get the uh, idea from what we've been talking about, a lot of this film feels very effortless to me. It feels like it's just polished and, you know, all the pieces uh, 
Um, and I know you had some issues with the pacing and so on, Gary, but so many of the pieces in here just work so smoothly. And, uh, and um, uh, you know, so many of the, the performances and the, the moments and the like are just exactly what they need to be. Yeah, I, I, mean, I can certainly see that. Mm-hmm. Performances are definitely good. Uh, I guess we can... There are just elements to it that I find that uh, on rewatch, when you know it's going to happen, there's a few too many scenes where it just it's almost like they're killing time just to pad things out a bit. I think particularly the one one of the scenes that, that like the one where uh, the mobster solo is taken out and killed. And it's basically <laughs> maybe a five minute scene. Maybe it's even shorter than that. But it doesn't feature Bond. It doesn't feature Goldfinger. It's really not much of a furtherance of the plot. It's obvious what's going to happen, so it sort of comes as a bit of a distraction from the rest of the movie. I can see that. I I guess you could say it makes the the point of what Goldfinger and Oddjob and the others are willing to do and how and how they would do it. You know, sort of emphasizes that threat. But yeah, it is sort of a a, a distraction. But I think that does does maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't have the timing right. I don't recall. But does Solo get killed after uh, Goldfinger's executed all the other gangsters, or does he get killed before? Maybe it is before because you're not supposed to realize just how murderous he is. But and the pacing is good for a one-time film. Yeah. But just rewatching rewatching movies, and I find that happens a lot where you see a movie that you really loved. And then you watch it again, and you realize, oh my god, it's so slow. And there's just <laughs> nothing happens until the scenes that I liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I mean, I guess I mean I'm, the one thing I do with the solo part that I I, I do kind of like is you know then that you know the whole sequence of you know taking the car off to the crusher and you know their way of yeah there weren't any more efficient ways of doing this. Yeah, if yeah, you can think of a better way to make ice, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And uh, you know, it's sort of you know, and then that little you know, this sort of little cat, you know, cat and mouse that's going on with the uh, odd job and and lighter. But uh, yeah. oh yeah, but as you say, you're right. They kill him. They crush the car, and then Goldfinger announces, "Now I'm going to have some of my people basically separate out the gold from this crushed car." Yes. <laughs> like you didn't really need to do any of that. You could have yeah. saved yourself a lot of trouble. Not yeah, like you people don't have anything gonna, better to do. He's got to keep all those smelters, you know, in practice for the. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they were smuggling gold by having it incorporated into the cars. So I guess cr- uh, crushing the car was the first step in uh, in uh, getting it to be able to extract all the gold. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but yeah. yes, it it was one of the bizarre moments that didn't work as well as some of the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, leave it to a Bond supervillain to find the most complicated way of doing something. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And um, Gary, when you talk about the idea of um, some of the things not being as good on rewatch, this was this film was still sort of from the era when you weren't thinking about people rewatching films as much. Oh, absolutely. I, because, I because at the uh, you know, and that's uh, not not saying that um, uh, that's an excuse for you know making the the films not as well. But it was more at a time when 
uh, films weren't released very often and you would see it when it came out. Most people wouldn't go to the theaters to see it more than once. And then it might not be uh, available again or who knows when it would be available again. Uh -huh. Yeah, if it was really, really popular, it might get re-released, you know, in 10 or 15 years or something. Yeah, exactly. And that is something where, you know, we've definitely seen changes in the way that film and television are made because of the ways in which things are available have changed. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, when we reach the point where, you know, literally TV episodes are being made with the assumption that, you know, yeah, somebody's going to be sitting there with the pause button, you know, and something flashes by. It's like, yes, they will pause to read what's on that screen. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Where, uh, Edmund, when you talked about the idea of the last episode of the Avengers that had Honor Blackman as Kathy Gale and yeah. having that that hint in it about um uh, becoming becoming Bond film. At that point it was a pretty reasonable assumption that anyone who was watching that episode would be watching it at that particular broadcast time when it was, you know, this many months away oh, yeah. from the new Bond film. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you were sort of comfortable that that context would be would be right. And, you know, people weren't thinking about, you know, the fact that, you know, decades later, people would still be watching episodes of the Avengers and still be watching Goldfinger. Yep. So it is interesting to see how things have uh, have changed in that way. So, okay, I think we've covered uh, most of what we've liked and didn't like in Goldfinger. Uh, anything you uh, you want to add on on those points? Yeah, well, there's there there's the the big glaring one for me, which I've kind of been holding off till the end. Um, much as I've talked about all you know all, all of these things that I like in the film, you know when I you know and this is from the very first time I watched it, the thing that has just always soured the ending for me is the fact that, and it seems to me that I think that it's more it's way more in this film than in any other of the bonds you know for all of the you know sort of cavalier attitudes towards women and you know you know the whole thing with dink at the beginning it, it just has always soured the end of the film to me that basically you know it, it completely turns on the fact that you know basically bond you know performs what's essentially a semi-rape on pussy galore and manages to turn her that way and you know for all of you know the but you know in it's just particularly in this film it's like you know yes you know we've seen bond you know sort of being you know being seductive and you know and charming and in this film it was just it that whole sequence of you know the sort of you know the the wrestling in the in the barn and then basically forcing himself on her and yes in the classic style of 50s and 60s male female relations you know he forces himself on her and then you know she acquiesces in the end but it's but it's the one part of the film that just really gets to me that he you know that essentially you know without that happening i mean he's dead in the water and uh you know i mean goldfinger's going to win and you know and and you know i know i don't have any problem with him you know you know turning her around to his side but it was just the manner in which it happens um has just you know all you know always kind of you know stuck in my throat and it's it's the one thing that really you know sort of keeps you know keeps this film from being sort of you know my absolute you know my you know favorite bond film is that you know that element of the ending i just really can't stand you know and there's 
you know, and, and thinking about it after rewatching it this time, I mean, it, you know, especially given given the context, you know, even though they keep saying, you know, Goldfinger is English, I mean, you know, no, I mean, there's this obvious, you know, obviously, you know, he has, I guess, naturalized English from Germany and with the whole sort of aviation element, you know, the fact that he, you know, he couldn't even, you know, be like turning her in terms of the fact, you know, you're, you're helping a German 20 years after the war. Um, and, uh, and what also gets to me about it is that just, you know, after, you know, sort of some of these more frivolous Bond girls, the fact that, you know, Pussy Galore is this, you know, very strong character, you know, she's, I mean, basically got her own business, you know, she's, you know, got, you know, yeah, has gone into business with Goldfinger. Um, and, uh, you know, and to have her, you know, and, and just the way she's interacting with Bond up until that point, it just doesn't make any sense to me that, you know, no, that, you know, she would, you know, succumb like that and get turned like that. And it, you know, it, it's just the, 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 the you know the the one element that just doesn't ring true to me i mean even in even though yes i know we're in this you know sort of you know the the fictitious bond universe but uh it's it's the one thing i just you know that just uh doesn't sit well with me yeah i mean that that sequence has always been a little uh discomforting and i will say though that it's it's fair comment i think yeah, it's it's certainly been one of the major criticisms, and watching it again this time, I actually felt that yeah, it's all there as you say, but I think there's a little more going on. I mean, even in the characterization, right before that, when he has a brief conversation with her, Goldfinger's just released revealed his plan to actually set off uh, an atomic bomb and to kill all the people around there, mm -hmm. and basically he says to her, you know, he's quite mad, and I think he's. I think she understands at this point. I mean, I think, I'm obviously I'm putting motivation in a character. I have no idea really how it was written. But I, I, I prefer to think of it as she's really, now she sort of realizes she's in over her head and this has gone too far. And I think Bond is sort of pushing at that in a way. I mean, it is, it, I don't think it's just the sexual thing that turns her. Yeah. I think the idea there is she's already pretty much realized she's working for a complete lunatic. And that murdering 60,000 people... To what end? She's going to kill everyone in the surrounding area with the nerve gas. It just doesn't... Uh, it, to me, it makes more sense that she's already realized she's in over her head. And um, I think that's what turns her, in my mm -hmm. mind. Like, the knowledge... That's sort of how I, was how I was interpreting things, too, or similar to that, anyhow. The, uh, the scene in the barn, while it was sort of cute to see, you know, them flipping each other and what have you, it, it was just a scene that didn't work well to do what they wanted it to do. It yeah. was sort of a little bit unfortunate that they, they uh, went a little too far comic when they should have gone a little bit more serious on it. Yeah, because I guess I mean, it, 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 given the way she's been presented, it's like you know, no, he, he I've always felt that he could he could do more of a straight argument with her, <laughs> um, you know, and and bring bring her around that way, you know, or, or at least plant be you know, be planting those seeds of doubt in subtler ways, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's certainly one of the, the the tougher parts of the movie that that scene. That that and the man talk and man talk. Oh, I was going to say the music in the barn scene. Oh, yeah, well. I, I've been with you all the way up till now, John Barry, but that I, but that I just can't forgive. <laughs> Again, pushing it too, uh, too comic. But yeah, that's um, definitely some, uh, some good points there. Uh, uh, Gary, any final what you like, what you didn't like? 
well, like I said, I, I enjoyed all the iconic elements. I find that there's, I find that if anything, and I think this is the producers wanted Bond to be a little more passive and not super heroic, but he doesn't really do a lot in the course of this movie. He, um, he's sort of extremely passive once Goldfinger captures him. He sort of hangs around. I mean, his only real mission is, I guess, as you say, to convince to convince Pussy Galore not to go ahead with the plan. Right. Uh, and that's that's his big accomplishment. Even at the end, and as he's trying to deactivate the bomb, uh, someone else has to do it for him. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so even that is like his sort of there, uh, more just being there throughout the film and not not taking as much of an active role in in, in certain parts of it. Well, he so is that, the, he is the one who takes out Odd Job and takes out Goldfinger. Yep. Oh no, he d- he gets to do his part for sure. Uh, but like I said, it's more he gets dragged along to a lot of it. Yeah. And he uses his own. I mean, he uses his intelligence to actually stay alive throughout yeah. much of this film. So it's actually it's that's pretty decent. One thing I do like is I like the way they updated the Fleming novel. I mean, I think in the novel Goldfinger is actually really planning on robbing Fort Knox of its gold, and. Uh, they found a much better way of going around that story. It was mm-hmm. much more interesting, yeah. Yeah. Rather yeah, than yes. just he's going to take all the gold, this whole thing about making the gold radioactive, and it ties into the nuclear and uh, atomic fears of the time. Yeah, no, that was really good. Um, as far as also talking about the things of the time, this also this movie also has Bond dissing the Beatles. Yes, I've always yes. found to be like bad call. <laughs> yeah, that bad call. If you were gonna have to have like something like stick with you in your most iconic movie that's gonna be seen for the next fifty years by people, don't don't diss the Beatles. <laughs> Yeah. And that was probably the last, like the latest time when they were producing this that they would have even considered doing that. That's true. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, because, you know, 64 was the big takeoff year for the Beatles. So, (laughs) but apparently Paul McCartney didn't hold it against him too much. Nope. (laughs) Yeah. All all in all, this is still a Bond film that I really have a soft spot for. I really quite enjoy it. Um, The, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, as I said, you know, when I first saw it, I mean, it was basically it was all the way up until that barn scene. I was going like, wow, this is the, you know, this really is the most amazing Bond film I've ever seen. And then, you know, as I say, just, you know, that, that, you know, cause I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yes, I understood what they were going for, but just the, the, the way they presented it, um, you know. It just, I think you know, I was probably too young to get that at the time. I was probably about, I was probably less, less younger than 10 years old when I saw this movie. So, yeah, 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 no, coming out of, you know, a, a, a little bit later and, uh, but um, but yeah, it uh, you know it's it's it, it, it's still way up there even even given that uh, you know that that one little distasteful part for me. Yeah, the only things that I sort of felt as being weak points in this really were that that same barn scene, mostly because uh, it sort of turned into uh, a comedy slash romance thing when it, uh, you know, when there was more meat to be had there. Uh, that would be one thing. And the other thing would be Felix just didn't live up to being Felix in this one. Yeah, yeah, but that was going to happen so many more times. It's really... True. Give, give it up at this point. Felix is never going to be Felix again. I guess. At least not till the Daniel Craig movies, but... Yeah. I think there were others that were more interesting than this one. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. There are others that had larger roles, uh, were more prominent in the films, but not necessarily all that more interesting. 
but we'll see. Yeah, well, I think there were others that I enjoyed more, but we shall see. Sure. So, uh, does anyone have a final comment they want to uh, to put on this guy? Recommendation? What did you think of it? Well, it's a classic Bond movie. Everyone who, who wants to watch Bond movies should definitely see this one. And certainly not one of the ones you should be skipping because it, all the elements do work really well together. And it has some of the best performances and the best sequences of any of the Bond films. So it's, it's definitely right up there. I just find for rewatching, it doesn't reward me as much as some of the other ones that I really like do. Okay, fair enough. This is one that I like a lot. Definitely, it's a classic. And uh, I, it's probably one of the ones that I've watched more than almost any of the others. And yeah, it's definitely uh, a classic piece of uh, James Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, this, you know, if, if you want to know what James Bond's all about, I mean, this is the one that's going to give you, you know, all, pretty much all of those classic elements all, all in one, one neat package. Okay, so I think that covers it. So take care, folks. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com. <laughs>